This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One, Alejandro Mayorkas impeached, the first sitting cabinet member impeached since 1870. What indication does this give us about the fight between Biden and Trump? Plus, does Alexander the Great give us a historical lesson on the necessity to build an empire? A special edition of Will and Pete. Two, Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid. Everybody take a deep breath. Men are competitive. Three, MMA. The only sitting Native American in the United States Senate. And what went down with the Senate border bill? A conversation with Senator Mark Wayne Mullen. It is the Will Kane Show streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel as well as the Fox News Facebook page. Everywhere there is Fox News, you can catch the Will Kane Show live streaming across the internet. It's always available on demand, the Will Kane Show on YouTube. From there, you can get exclusive content, including our interviews like yesterday's with a man full of wisdom. Tony Robbins. Go back and listen to that on the power of investing and the power of positivity in your mind and how you can control the objective reality with your subjective perception by waking up every day full of gratitude. As well, you can find interviews with Dave Portnoy or Jordan Peterson. You can always listen to us on demand wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. Coming up today, we have, I think, probably the most Perhaps the most unique senator in the United States Senate, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma. He is and has been in the past an MMA fighter. We'll talk to him about whether or not everyone needs to be punched in the face. He is the only sitting senator who is Native American, a member of the Cherokee Nation. He's unique. But he's also going to talk to us about the Senate border bill that failed and what should be America's approach to foreign aid, say, in Ukraine. But first, there are many things that I am good at when it comes to being a husband. I don't fight. I'm not jealous. I have a loving marriage. We get along very well. And it's full of love. I think of all the things I've done in my life, perhaps the place where I literally outkicked my punt coverage, the place where I did the best was in my marriage. It's produced wonderful sons, a wonderful relationship, a life that I could not have if not for having married my wife, Kathleen. But one of the things I'm very bad at is celebrating that love. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I had to be reminded last night that today is Valentine's Day. It snuck up on me. February the 13th snuck up on me. So February the 14th was a surprise. And it's not unique to Valentine's Day. I'm bad at holidays. I'm bad at Christmas gift giving. I'm bad at birthdays. I'm pretty much bad at the calendar, significant events. 
And if that's how you mark the success of a relationship, consider me a failure. I mean, there's no flowers, there's no chocolates, there's no gift giving. There will be dinner, which she helped coordinate the reservation. And I'm not telling you this proudly. I don't have some deep theory about the commercialization of romance and how we should all opt out of the mainstream culture. I have nothing. No, I should. And I fail. I'm bad at holidays. And so count this as another thing that I'm bad at. I'm a failure at Valentine's Day. But I know somebody who's not. And we will start at story number one. He is my co-host at Fox and Friends Weekend. He's joining us every other Wednesday right here on The Will Cain Show. And starting this morning on Fox and Friends, every Wednesday, if you wake up, you'll catch Will and Pete off the grid. It's a weekday version of our weekend segment off the wall. And I'm going to bet, like, first of all, you have OCD, you're you're calendar oriented. I think you spend more time prepping your to-do list and calendars than you do executing whatever appears on that calendar. Yeah. And you're, you're conscientious. You're, you're definitely a loving husband. You nail Valentine's day. (laughs) Uh, maybe first of all, you've never described me as wise. Uh, you need to go back and watch the podcast and get the wisdom of uh, Tony Robbins. You've never described me as such. Second of all, uh, Mark Wayne Mullins might punch you in the face by the end of the interview. Uh, interesting guy. (laughs) You should definitely watch that. Uh, he, he tried to fight somebody in a Senate chamber. That's going to be interesting. Um, Valentine's Day. Here's the thing for me. You're right. I'm very organized. I think through it. I get stressed if I'm not ready for it. But he, see, my wife, you got Christmas, then it's her birthday on January 30th, and then it's it's Valentine's Day. Uh, and so I'm exhausted by the time. I benefit from one thing, Will. My first marriage uh, uh, to uh, my high school sweetheart, we divorced. Uh, our wedding was on Valentine's Day. So I get to downplay that day because it's not an anniversary that I translates into my marriage uh, with Jen. So it's sort of a muted holiday. I have to recognize that flowers are en route um, to the house. We will. Uh, I don't get into late tonight, but we will celebrate it on Tuesday of next week. Here's what I figured out. Well, don't try to get a gift. Gifts are stressful. You know that. So what mm. I've done is I've combined mm. birthday, January 30th and Valentine's Day with a shopping with Jen all day day where I just carry the bags and it's my credit card and she kind of does whatever for the day and I follow along. And that way I don't have to do anything, but she loves it. I love that. But here's the thing. I can't execute because um, my wife gives me an out, which I happily I happily accept. She's always like, let's not do gifts or, you know, I don't like shopping. I don't want to spend money. And then I'm like, cool. And, and I don't know if it's meant, I don't know if it's sincere, but that little parachute ripcord allows me to exit the free fall. I'm, okay, you, cool, you know, um, next holiday. <laughs> By the way, who, who did Senator Mark Wayne Mullen try to fight in the Senate? Oh, one of the, yeah, he called him out in a hearing. Uh, it was a union boss. It was some union boss that was there, and apparently they'd been going at it um, over Twitter and so this union boss shows up in his committee and he calls him out and then he's like, you want to fight? And the union boss was like, yeah, I'll fight you. And then he's like, oh, I'll fight you. And then he stood up behind the dais and the union boss stood up and then a fight. They almost fought. Uh, they both look like pretty tough dudes. I think the UFC fighter is going to be OK. You should ask. Double check it. I'm pretty sure it was Mark Wayne Mullen. 
I, that is that that story now rings a bell with the union boss. By the way, you and I play cowboy. I mean, I think Mark Wayne Mullen's the real deal. Like he's from you know Eastern Oklahoma, and I know a thing or two about Eastern Oklahoma. You know, he fought. And he's got I don't know. He's got horses. Um, I think he's, if I were ranking senators that I least want to tangle with, but might most want to have a beer, he might come in number one. High on the list. I mean, he's got two first names combined into one name, Mark Wayne, and that is a sign that you are legit country. All right. And he's a U.S. senator. I mean, that that's it. I wouldn't fight the guy. I'd probably get now I'm in trouble with him. You got me in trouble with him. I don't want to fight you. You're you win. Oh, I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, first, a point. Mark Wayne Mullen. Um, you know, he's fortunate that that the space was left out between the fir- two first names because if it had been a two name, you know, moniker, he's would be high on the list for for uh, Secret Service targeting for potential presidential assassination. You you know how that works. You know yes. that almost all presidential assassins have been Middle name. two names. You know, Lee Harvey. Um, who else is escaping my attention? Uh, John Wilkes. Oh, you know, uh, John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. So, by by losing the space, he he he's taken himself off of a Secret Service <laughs> um, target list. Hey, I was um I was in Las Vegas for the Super Bowl, and how did this come up? I was walking down the Las Vegas Strip with my son, sixteen years old, and it, 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 we were talking about The Rock, and there was there was. Somebody that I had met at the Super Bowl who was really like jacked and in shape, and he was like, "Do you think you could win a fight with him?" I was like, "No, I couldn't win a fight with him. You know, he would destroy me." I, I, I wish I could remember who this was. Um, and, and it was Gronk. I think it was Gronk, or because I was telling him about some guys that I had met at the Super Bowl, and and then he goes, "Do you think Pete would win a fight with with him?" <laughs> Let's just presume for a moment it, it was Gronk, and I was like, "Wait a minute." You did you just escalate your rankings? Did you say, well, you can't fight Gronk, but Pete could win a fight with Gronk? And he goes, well, yeah. And I go, so let me just let me just see if I can do the math. Are you saying that Pete wins a fight with me? And he goes, yes. <laughs> I said, well, a a you're right, and b I don't I don't like you looking at my friend and going. He's more alpha than my dad. <laughs> that is a hilarious Wilkane admission. Uh, I, I want to thank Charlie for that endorsement. Uh, I think it's super cool, by the way, that you brought your 16-year-old to the Super Bowl. Like, what a moment. And I saw that you had the hat when you went with your dad. Like, that is – I got chills just saying that and thinking about that. That's super cool. Uh, what an experience. I, I'm still at a place where I've convinced my kids that I could beat Anyone in a fight, anyone, the rock, Gronk, anybody, I'm still invincible. And I, and I, it's still in the bloodstream amongst all of them. I know that facade is going to break down. I think, but you're right. I, I'm kind of into building those facades, knowing that they're going to fall down later. And your parenting style is a lot more of like, Hey, I'm just going to be real with my kids. Like, of course, Gronk would beat the crap out of me. And, 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 you know, likewise with the rock or whatever example I would use, I just, just I just prolong the disappointment. Um, but you, Charlie, I, I appreciate that, Charlie. Thank you very much. 
Yeah, you've managed to cultivate an image in a young 16-year-old man's mind. <laughs> but it is an image that would fall second to Mark Wayne Mullen. Uh, coming up in just a moment here on The Will Cain Show. All right, story number one with Pete Hegseth. Uh, first, I want to start with something that it, on the surface is, I think, really ridiculous and light. But I have, a, I have a deeper theory that I want to run by you, Pete. So, first of all, Rachel Dolezal famous uh, transracial NAACP activist. Everyone can remember that Rachel Dolezal, for years, pretended and pulled off that she was black and rose in the Pacific Northwest, high up in the rankings of the NAACP. She, uh, I don't know if she darkened her complexion. She definitely had, like, dreadlocks. And, you know, of course, afterwards, she was accused of uh, cultural appropriation. I mean, at some point, by the way, transracial is going to be accepted. It's as logical as transgender. But the, the, the new career path for Rachel Dolezal, Pete, is apparently she is on OnlyFans. She is, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not pretending to be more... Um, purer than I actually am. I don't know much about OnlyFans, but it is a subscription-based, basically porn site. And and Dolezal is on there, basically, I think there's no basically, I think she's doing porn on OnlyFans. And I find this fascinating in that this is her second career move from civil rights activist to porn star. So I read this article. This is one of those articles. You see it if you followed the first story and you absolutely click on it because you need to know what this is about. And and I'm with you, Will. I'm not faking virtue here. I, kn- I know what OnlyFans is because it's almost ubiquitous cultural wise. When you read the article that I read about this, first of all, she's definitely doing like porn by request. That's a, that's what OnlyFans be. And she clearly has a lot of fans in that and 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 i think only fans becomes the place for a sort of b-level 15 minute of fame people get for their extension uh and she's making some but here's the thing she is also living under a new name which is uh i can't remember the name but it's like an african name and she's now an after school supervisor so she works for a public school in a different state under a new name and has assumed an only fans page and to me we've we've i don't know how, how does the school reconcile that if you're doing like you know drag queen story hour and gender transitions why is it not okay for a teacher to have an only fans page and be the after school supervisor i mean there's where's the where's the boundary it's a great question here's my takeaway that so many people are seeking attention it's not a great leap from you know fake African-American NAACP civil rights activists to OnlyFans. It, it, it's something psychological that, that, that people are seeking. And I don't, think, I don't think I want to use Rachel Dolezal as this great illustration of society at large. But I do think I think there's two things that are symptomatic. One, all she really wanted was attention. That's it. And she's going to find that attention validation wherever it wherever it's available. At first, it was in the civil rights movement. Second, it's in OnlyFans. But this is the other symptomatic thing I find fascinating. I am shocked, Pete, and I'm not going to lead you down too bumpy of a road here, but I am shocked at the number of women who decide that external validation through the way they look is the end game. What what I'm getting at is, and there's an internet term for this, thirst trap. That's an Instagram term. Like, you know, post the bikini picture, post how hot you are, post something sexy. And what I'm taken aback by, Pete, is not necessarily Rachel Dolezal in this moment, but 
so many people in maybe in news, in professional environments, who maybe I'm scrolling and I'm like, oh, hey, you know, wasn't expecting the shot of you in your in your bikini. I'm a little taken aback by it seems like if you could keep like not everyone, not everyone, but if you keep distilling it down, you boil things down, I'm just a little surprised at like how many women end up here. Like after you boil everything down, you you, you reduce it, reduce it, reduce it, you end up with, hey, check out how hot I am on Instagram. Seeking validation and and uh, affirmation somewhere else. Uh, I, I hate to be old school about it, but like when you pull God out and you pull out families and relationships and good fathers, then you get uh, you're seeking affection somewhere else, validation somewhere else, and it's become the image of self. It's become uh, I basically worship myself, and if other people are worshiping me, then that God gets bigger, and as a result, the more clicks, the more likes, the more follows. Uh, so with <laughs> here's the thing in any. I used to say, you know, it's true. I mean, we're all four bad decisions away from being the homeless guy. Like without God, without God, like we're all three bad decisions away from being on OnlyFans. Like, I mean, really big, bad life decisions, right? I mean, like you, we like to say, oh, but if you like, I lose this, I lose this, I lose this, and I and and I and I give up on God. Like, pretty soon I'm selling myself on the internet. So I mean, I don't want to stand uh, in judgment of all of those women. Um, but you talk to a lot of women and men and they ultimately, when they're able to escape it, they, they, they talk about how empty it is, uh, and that it is a temporary place to maybe make money or whatever. Um, and obviously there's demand for it, right? If people are paying for it, it's, that's a sad commentary too. I don't buy that we're three bad decisions away from homelessness, but I do buy that we might be three bad decisions away from OnlyFans. So with that, what is the male version of this? What is the male version of hey, check out how hot I am in my bikini on Instagram. Like, what do we do when you start distilling it down, you know, reducing it down it? to we're the three bad decisions away from being what as a man? Like, we're not. <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, it's not a direct correlate. Dudes aren't about to post, um, like, shirtless photos, you know, gratuitously no. on Instagram. And workout workout videos are kind of for other dudes. Like, check out me, you know, I'm, my workout. So it's not really like, look how hot I am and I need an external validation. But there's something. I just don't know what ours I is. Think, like, you reduce it down. Yeah. And we're three bad decisions from what? <laughs> three bad decisions away from uh, hammering Coors Light at 11 a.m. playing bingo. Like, I don't know. Like, it's it, it, there's a restaurant <laughs> right near me that has that. Like, you know, it's just... There, you're where you where you've lost your self worth and everything around you. That's why I think uh, trying to find worth from the world is increasingly an empty proposition. I hear you. Three bad decisions away from self flagellation: popping yeah. a Coors Light, smoking a Marlboro Red, and seeing if you can hit on Bingo. <laughs> See where the day goes. Yeah. All right. All right. Story number two: Alejandro Mayorkas. With Pete Hegseth here. Alejandro Mayorkas is, um, has been the first sitting cabinet member to be impeached since 1870. He has not fulfilled his duty, according to the House of Representatives. In some way, Pete, it's symbolically important. In other ways, it's, it's practically ineffectual. It doesn't, it, nothing will happen in the Senate. He will not, he, nothing will change. But um, do you see that differently in any way on this moment for Alejandro Mayorkas? 
No, it's what Republicans are best at, right? Pro forma stuff. Uh, so, like, we get to demonstrate that we're really serious about this issue, but getting anything done about it, usually when they're in power, often doesn't happen. Now, they can't do anything because of the Senate and because of the White House. So doing this, I think, is the right thing to do. Uh, but it doesn't change anything about the border. I'm just glad they didn't cave on the border for Ukraine deal. Now we've learned that Republicans love Ukraine more than they love the border <laughs> in, the, in the U.S. Senate. But I'm just glad they didn't cave on that because that's a signing on to a bad deal, as Trump has said, is, I think, worse than uh, than signing on to a bad deal is worse than no deal with the time with the clock ticking. Uh, he deserves to be impeached. He's what his actions are treasonous. Our border is wide open, and that means you don't have a country. And the Senate's going to just dismiss it. They'll find a way to do nothing with it. But you consider what Trump got impeached for. This is real stuff, in my opinion. You know, there was a New York Times focus group that just came out. And it, it was fascinating, I think, in a couple of different revelations. One, it, it did boil down. First of all, I think 11 of 13 members of the focus group were Trump over Biden. And it isn't to say they didn't have negative things about both, like, there were negative things they had to say about Trump's personality. There were more negative things to be said about uh, the mental fitness of Joe Biden. But then when you got into some of the issues, if and I am a big believer, and I've talked about it here, like I think issues should be important. I'm not sure they will be as important as the personality contest. And as part of that personality contest, I include Biden's mental fitness. But when, but when it came to issues, the issues that were rattled off by this focus group, again, New York Times, were inflation and immigration, issues that trend, obviously, towards Republicans. Well, we're doing this segment off the grid, which is not about the grid and living off. It's about like getting off of the D.C., uh, New York media cycle of what everyone's talking about. And when you get outside in America, those are when I talk to folks, those are the those are the things that come up like I can't afford my life. For a number of reasons, I work hard. I've got a middle class existence and I can't afford it, which means I looked at a diminished life for myself and a diminished life for my kids. And I can't believe we're letting in 10 million people and we have no idea who they are. Um, this scares the heck out of me. And so I do think this this New York Times example swings us back to when things get this bad, it does get back to policy. It does get back to like, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to sign on for the daddy party here. I'm signing on for somebody I may not like in Trump, who's at least going to do something about these things that affect my life uh, over the guy who's had a chance and has crushed our country. So I, oddly, even though the even though the personality aspects are going to get bigger, I think it's so bad that the issues take over some level. One last point on Mayorkas. Last week, Pete, I had here on the Will Cain show, Matt Taibbi, who's done some reporting along with Semaphore on the links to which the Democratic Party is going to go to ensure a victory for Joe Biden. And of course, we know about the links they'll go to when it comes to Donald Trump. But this was reporting on what they will do to anyone else who could disrupt the electoral process, meaning the threats they have issued in, for, in the form of a letter to, for example, no labels, any third party. The, 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 I think the direct quote was, there will be no Jill Stein in 2024. Um, and one of those that they're talking about is RFK. Like there will be no RFK disruption of this process. And to put a button on Mayorkas, you know, this was recently revealed. This is pretty shocking. He personally declined. He personally declined the Secret Service protection for RFK Jr. And when you put that in the context of what Taibbi was talking about <laughs> and how vindictive, they said they said in this reporting, by the way, Pete, 
forget a skeleton in your closet. If you have a fingernail in your closet, we are going to launch the investigations. And you combine that with, hey, and we're also not going to afford you any Secret Service protection. Like, the the lengths to which over the next, what is it going to be, six to seven months, that we're going to see disruption of the democratic process in the name of saving democracy to ensure that Joe <laughs> yes, Biden, yeah. I guess, I'm still unconvinced it's going to be Joe Biden, but to, to, to ensure a Democrat is president of the United States, mind-blowing. Democracy will be saved by destroying democracy. That is, it, it, that's exactly, I mean, it's animal farm stuff. It's 1984 stuff. This is exact, it, 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 they're, they're parroting themselves, which is why when people say, what should Trump do? The first thing I say, and I mean this seriously, is he needs to double his security. Um, and, and I don't say that trying to be hyperbolic or conspiratorial, uh, but there will be no end to which the Democrats believe it is necessary that they win this election to include um They've already said with third parties, you can't do this. Uh, it's and they'll use the intelligence services, as we've learned a lot this week, uh, the CIA or foreign services to get whatever they can. Yeah, just to put some flesh on that. So everybody knows that's the new reporting. So when it comes to the Russia collusion investigation, the story now goes, according to new reporting, the CIA asked foreign intelligence companies to spy on Trump. I believe it was 26 different. 26 different foreign intelligence agencies to spy on Trump. The FBI then used that, those foreign intelligence agencies that accepted the invitation from the CIA, the FBI then used that as a predicate to say that Trump was coordinating with foreign intelligence agencies, creating, I mean, that is entrapment. That, that is, first of all, it's a violation also. It's also a violation of, like, CIA not supposed to spy, even through, even through proxies on American citizens, much less election interference. But it's also definitionally entrapment and the creation of something then dismissed as conspiracy. It's and we just call it Tuesday. I mean, and at this point, it just rolls <laughs> off our back. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, What yeah. else have they yeah. done that we're not aware of? And half the population won't believe what I just said. Half the population will not ever a hear it or b believe it, even when it's laid out with the facts. Well, because it's their friends that are doing it. So, I, I mean, say they, they go to the same schools, they've traveled in the same circles, they're, they're, they're intermarried, the media, the journalists, the CIA, uh, ex the executive. I mean, it's all one giant group saving, all out to save democracy uh, in, in pursuit of uh, making sure there's only one Democrat that gets to be in charge. Story number three. The speed wobbles on Fox and Friends with Pete Excess. Before I get into this, this morning before you did Off the Grid, you told me, and my return didn't work on Off the Grid. I couldn't see you, so I don't know what you I were wearing. Either. But um, I, you texted me, hey, man, I'm going to wear a, a flannel. I'm going to go more casual. I may do a double collar. And I literally said to my wife, hey, this is what Pete said he's wearing. Uh, what's a double collar? And she goes, I, I don't know. What's a, what's a double collar? And my return on the Will Cain show is over here. So every once in a while, you'll see me glance to the right because I can see my guest instead of looking directly at the camera. And I see you're wearing the double collar. I, I didn't even know this mm -hmm. is a thing. I, I don't know. Do people do this? This is Minnesota. Is this a Princeton thing? <laughs> what is the double collar? I would I'll say I became familiar with the double collar from Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon made the double collar a popular thing. I think it's great. It's basically a modified uh, a, a zipper up sweater, right? Like you wear a collared shirt under a, a, 
a quarter zip. This is just doubling up the collars. I think it's a sharp look. I wore it this morning on Fox News. <laughs> I looked at myself. I'm like, man, I look great. So I decided I'll wear it on the For a moment, I was like, too. for a moment, I was like, is he wearing an ascot? What is under his <laughs> shirt? And like, oh no, it's another button down. <laughs> this is the shirt you have also. We got this on Fox and Friends. And I was worried you might wear the same shirt. So I covered it up with a different shirt. The double button down. Interesting. Yep. Uh, Pete, I'm going to let you tell this story because I didn't even know this was happening on Fox and Friends. I truly did not. I did not know this was happening until you pointed it out. Now, I'll set it up to this extent. People often ask me, hey, how much do you read on Fox and Friends? Meaning, not for preparation, but on the show. How much are you yep. reading a teleprompter? How much are you talking? And the answer to that for me is usually like, I'm probably reading 20% of the time. Now, I think everybody watching should understand that doesn't mean somebody's writing my thoughts out for me and my job is just to read them. Some shows are more teleprompter driven, some less. For example, The Five, no teleprompter. Any of your primetime shows, almost all teleprompter. But that doesn't mean that they're reading what is told to them. The hosts write those scripts in the teleprompter and then it's a more polished presentation in primetime. In Fox and Friends, it's really more like the five. It's it's less teleprompter. We read to transition. Like so, it, it, we sometimes we read the headlines. That's that's written in the teleprompter. Sometimes we read it to set up the next topic. But sometimes we don't have something in the teleprompter, and we have to set up the topic on our own. And I want you to tell everybody now what happens in those moments. Well, it's next level enjoyable to host with two people you know so well that you can get into these idiosyncrasies and have fun with it because no, no something like this might actually aggra you know aggravate hosts if you don't have this like great relationship but it adds another so in at the top of the hour oftentimes you know we have multiple topics and it doesn't you will you know this nowhere does it say okay pete's gonna set this topic up or will's gonna set this topic up it's it's very much an open season so if if you if your will's really passionate about it he might set it up or if it's a military topic i might set it up or, or whatever well there are times when everyone kind of hesitates and uh, and and it's like well no one really knows who's going to take this story and set it up because no one really knows the story because you're, you're prepping and, and really quickly by set it up by set it up, what he means, what we're talking about is give the facts and the background of the story as opposed to simply opinionate on how you see the story. So the audience needs to understand the story before we give you our view of the story. So the person that Correct. sets it up has a burden, has a responsibility to lay up, to, to set the stage. So yesterday, you might be like this. So yesterday, this story caught our eye. A school out in California has a new policy that says in the boys' bathroom, they're going to – every boys' bathroom is going to have, you know, feminine nap – something like – whatever it is. But you've got to give the facts so that Will and Rachel can then sound off on what we think about it. And I started to notice every once in a while when I was doing it, and you can tell – the viewer probably can't tell, but I can tell that I'm barely, barely getting the facts together, barely know the story – I can see out of the corner of my eye, Will is doing this, just staring at me, just staring at me. <laughs> and he doesn't always stare at me when I talk, okay? But he's staring at me. And and I and it just creates this extra set of pressure because he feels like I'm losing control. Like I, I don't really know the topic. And so he's watching me for his own amusement. 
to see whether or not I can land this plane <laughs> and finish this setup. And it creates all this additional stress. And so every time Will turns his head now, I feel like, what am I doing? Am I messing something? You know, it gets in your head a little bit. And, and so, and so- it, it doesn't bother me. I have fun with it. So what happened is I, I think I shared it with you, Will, that this was happening. Like, you know, this happens. And I don't think you even knew you were doing it. You were doing it. And then... <laughs> So then he knew it was happening. And so now turnabout is fair play. Well, you call and and you're doing it to me. Now, but here's the deal. I didn't know I was doing this to you. So again, for the audience, like I can tell when he has full command of a story to set it up. And I can tell when we have all been very patient to see who's going to set this story up because none of us feel really confident in all the ins and outs of a story. And I can tell when you've taken the wheel and you don't have full command and you are sort of you're searching with your words on what to say. This is, and your, for me, this is your analogy. right? And here. for me, you're all like, of a sudden, I feel the steering wheel, even though your hands are on the wheel. I can feel the wheel go, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I look at you because I want to see the car crash. It's like my son, I remember when he was little and I made him skateboard down this huge hill. And the, the, th- the, the risk on going down this huge hill is if you ever get the speed wobbles. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone who's ever rode mm-hmm. a bike or mm-hmm. skateboarded down a hill, once you get the speed wobbles, <laughs> It starts going like this and it gets worse and now it's it's headed for disaster. So when I feel you speed wobbling, I turn because I want to see how this is going to go or how you're going to pull it off. And, and I, I didn't it, know I was it doing it until you said it. Like, you know what? I know you think I'm wobbling, but I'm, I'm going to nail this. And sometimes I've noticed you do it anyway, just even if I'm not wobbling, maybe to just try to get me off my game. So now I've taken to... Every once in a while, I will just turn and stare at Will in the middle of his read, whether he's nailing it or not. And I can tell when, when he can see it out of the periphery just to return the favor just a, just a tiny bit. So when you're watching the show, look for some of the – now, a lot of times yeah. they're covering the, this on the screen. You're seeing something else than the couch when this is happening. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? But no watch. thanks for, for, for taking the bullet on the topic that nobody wants. It's It's a thankless job. When you when you <laughs> got to carry the whole team, um, but you know I it's the cross I carry, you know. But just watch, okay? Just watch Fox and Friends and see <laughs> yes. if you can identify the speed wobbles, and just know that if somebody has a little bit of a shaky steering wheel, there's another guy watching and kicking the skateboard. Just going, I can't <laughs> just wait. Just like guys, though. Just like guys. I'm not here to help you. I'm here to watch you fall hard, okay? And then we're gonna laugh about it. You're totally right. You couldn't do this on any other show where you don't have this relationship. Uh, if I did that, I, and I, I like him, I just don't have this relationship with Steve Ducey. Of course, his skateboard would never wobble. But if I, no, I don't have that relationship wobble. with others, they'd be like, what is he doing right now? Why is he staring at me? All right, story number four with Pete Hegseth. All right, man, I'm watching Alexander the Great on Netflix. It's a docudrama series about his conquest throughout Asia, expanding it from a small little empire in Macedonia throughout the entirety of Asia and defeating the Persian Empire. And I got to thinking of it when I was watching this, man. I, 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 it, for some reason, it reminded me of Jimmy Johnson, the legendary coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And I'm pretty sure it was Johnson that said this. There is no status quo. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. 
every day in sports. You're never remaining the same. And it kind of made me think about this when it came to Alexander and empire building and like you're either growing or you're shrinking. And I wondered if that applied. And then I thought about America and I thought, well, what about us? I mean, we're, we're not a traditional empire in the historical sense of expanding our territorial boundaries, but we certainly reach out with our tentacles, you know, bases and bombs and uh, in, you know, centuries past, you know, some form of colonialism, more prominent in Europe. My point is, I'm wondering, does that apply in modern in modern day analysis in history that we're living in? Like, if we're not growing, are we shrinking? Now, you and I both, and everyone watching knows, I'm pretty much a non-interventionist, not an isolationist, but a non-interventionist filtered through the prism of, you know, serve America first. Our prosperity and our peace come first. But just kind of like in the broad historical concept, Context, I start to wonder, like, well, every other empire is either growing or declining, one or the other. Are we the exception because we have two great oceans on either side of us and we can, and no great rivals to the north or to the south? Can we afford to be, you know, citizen farmers, you know, city states, um, focus on our own internal prosperity and freedom? Or are we missing the broad historical scope of every other empire? I love this topic. I love the way you're thinking about it. I've thought about it a lot, too. We think about the Roman Empire. We think about it. The phrase I've always used, I wrote about it in my first book, is history is not over. History is not over, which is sort of a pedestrian phrase, but it's playing off of uh, Francis Fukuyama, who wrote the book The End of History, this idea that like democracies were inevitably going to support each other and peace would break out, this perpetual peace. And it hasn't happened, and it's not going to happen because humanity is not perfectible and pride and power. And uh, these are all things that infect the human soul and and countries are going to rise and fall. So absolutely everything is moving. And it's not just military power. It's economic power. It's cultural power. It's the the international systems. It's how mutually dependent countries are on each other. And I look at the complacency of the American system, which loves to see now our power executed only through bombs and drones and interventions. And I contrast that with, say, what China is trying to do through international bodies, through debt, through economic, through cultural influence, through technology, through intellectual property. Like they're ascendant in their aspirations. And it feels like we're playing defense in a in a very static mm-hmm. way, trying to I love that we're trying to make America great again, but we're, we're, we're trying to sort of reverse engineer greatness that we had as opposed to looking to the future as the frontier of, of American dominance. And again, I don't mean that geographically or militarily per se, just in our sort of status in the world. We That's one of the big flaws of our republic is that we think two to four years in advance because we think in iterations of elections and we make giant changes in direction. We're going to go from worshiping climate change under Joe Biden to dismissing it completely under Donald Trump and unleashing energy. independence. like that's not an effective way to steer the world, the leader of the free world. So uh, that's I think that's the big question we're all asking. Are we at the top? Are we in the decline? And what does that mean? And usually the power dynamics change when a country in decline thinks it's big enough to defeat defeat its next rival and uh, comes up against something it can't defeat. And then the collapse comes quickly. And that doesn't have to be militarily. It can be culturally, politically or financially. And the question is not if it's a, it's a when that clash comes and, and what form it takes. 
Well, if that's true, and I think it is true, then the American experiment or the American empire, and you could argue that it wasn't supposed to be an empire, it was supposed to be an experiment, is relatively short-lived. If, if you're proje- you didn't say whether or not we are on the decline, whether we've hit the apex or not, but historically, look, two, three hundred years would be a short, a short run for, for uh, a, a world power. And, and I don't know where we are in that, in that there's a lot of people saying we are a declining empire. Everything that's happening culturally is a symptom of a declining empire. And I think they have a really strong point. But I just try to sometimes, by the way, you're 100% correct about China as well. China thinks way longer time horizons. They think 50 years. They think 100 years. What will so this Islamists. look like? Yeah. And I have given them, I, I, I've done monologues here on the Will Kane Show about we should take Yes, we should rival China and criticize China, but we should also take lessons from your strategic foe on what they're doing well. And they seem to have a lot of global influence without bases and bombs. So maybe there's something to learn from China. But um, I try to like broaden that scope myself and say, are we truly over the hump? We've already hit the apex and we are on the decline. Or does history tell us we've got a longer runway? Two quick things on that. The average, I remember doing the research on it in my first book, again, the average lifespan of republics is about 275 years. Historically speaking, there's been some shorter ones, there's been some much longer ones. So we're right in that area where you could conceive of a tipping point. And then I think things just happen a lot faster. I mean, think about the speed of communication, the speed of movement, the speed of change today is a lot different than in Alexander or the Roman time. I mean, it just took that much longer to exert your will or your weaknesses to be exposed or a foe to take advantage of you uh, than it does today. So I, I I think our our fall could be faster and even harder than previous. But I, I don't know that it'll be a military because of what you described in the oceans and north and south. It'll be influence culture. I mean, look at the look at the British Empire. Look at the French Empire. Look at what was and then what wasn't and how quickly it happened. I think that's the kind of influence we think we can exert, which is we fly our drones over your country and bomb you at will with no consequence will may not be the world we live in in 50 years, but it could be that China bombs your country with at will uh, with no consequence. And we're at the whim of, you know, I mean, those are the ways in which it would change. Really good, really good stuff with Pete Hegseth. Enjoyed it. Another episode of Will and Pete here. I appreciate it, man. I'll see you again next time. Thank you, brother. Try the double collar. It's good. All right. Maybe. We'll see. Feels Princeton. Senator Mark Wayne Mullen is not Princeton. He's Eastern Oklahoma. He's a former MMA fighter. I think he's a legit cowboy. He's coming up to talk about not just his life, but also the movement in the Senate the border bill, the foreign aid funding, Ukraine, that, and I've had it, I've had it, but not in the way that you think. I'm tired of actually the response, the outrage to Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Coming up on The Will Kane Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Men are competitive. That doesn't make it right, but it doesn't make it worthy of outrage. Andy Reid getting bumped by Travis Kelsey in the Super Bowl. That's coming up in just a moment here on the Will Kane Show. Streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel. Always on demand. Go check out Pete Hegseth and that interview, plus Tony Robbins, plus Jordan Peterson, plus Senator Rand Paul, and our next guest, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who will all be available on demand at the Will Kane Show on YouTube. So joining me now for story number two is Senator Mark Wayne Mullen here on the Will Kane Show. Senator, great to have you. Hey, brother. How you doing? I'm good. So, yeah, by the way, speaking of competitive, I have to ask you because it was just left off in my last conversation with Pete Hegseth. So you did almost get in a fight on the floor of the Senate? On the floor of the Senate? No. It was, uh, it was, in, the, it was in the hearing room. I wouldn't say a fight. I mean, we're long ways for a fight. I used to get paid to fight. I'm not going to, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to just fight somebody for the heck of it. But I think you may be referring to uh, Sean O'Brien, the Teamster president, um, that uh, that wanted to run his mouth a little bit and call me out and say anytime, any place. And I just calmly said, we can fight for charity. Or we can do it right here, right now, if you'd like to. Uh, in fact, I think my words were, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can sell it right here. <laughs> Something to that nature. How dare I assume how dare I assume that would happen on the floor of the Senate? It was just in a hearing room, and we all know among the things that take place in Senate hearing rooms, that would be one of the more tame <laughs> events to, to unfold in a Senate be. hearing room. You know, I, and people ask me if I was mad about that. I wasn't. I mean, I like I said, I used to get paid. I fought professionally. I just, you know, we just don't do that in Oklahoma, and I don't like bullies. And I, I mean, really, this is really what it comes down to. I don't like bullies, and if I was. I, I grew up with a real bad speech impediment, and I had had to wear braces on my legs, and so I, I couldn't argue with you, and I, I couldn't run from you, and so I, I learned how to fight as a young kid, and so I tell not everybody has the ability to stand up to bullies, uh, and but if you do, someone's got to stop them. That was kind of my whole point there. I some people said I could have handled it different, but I handled it like we do in Oklahoma, I guess. Well, speaking of that, by the way, I mean it's part of your bio. People know this. You you fought yeah. MMA for a while, and I think your family in general is it wrestling that you your I think yeah. your kids wrestle. You may have wrestled. Um, yeah. So this is a bit. I mean, fighting MMA, big part of the Mark Wayne Mullen story. Yeah. I, listen, my wife is a professional kickboxer. She's a uh, uh, I think three. I think she's a third degree black belt in karate. And, um, and she may be fourth degree, but, uh, and she, uh, I mean, she's tough. I got two boys wrestling for Oklahoma state as we speak. One that's committed to, uh, to OU next year. He's a senior. And then I've got three girls that are tougher than my boys and they're not quite old enough yet, but I'm sure they'll probably go someplace and wrestle, but it's just a dis it's a discipline for us. Right. So it's something we do as a family in my family, you wrestle and like it or wrestle and don't like it. So choose your attitude. And uh, because it's a life experience, and I think life mimics so many of these, so many one-on-one sports. I don't care if it's if you're running cross country or running track, um, uh, even if you're playing golf, which I don't play golf, but you really don't have anybody to blame but yourself when you when you when you screw up. And so it's one of those things you just got to suck it up, take take your licks as they come, and take your victories as they come. But you don't celebrate long because you know next next day or that or later on that day you got somebody else coming after you. 
I want to ask you about uh, the Senate border bill. I want to ask you about foreign aid funding specifically yeah. to Ukraine. But I, I almost I also am I'm fascinated by your biography. And I want to ask you a few more questions on that. Um, sure. You know, you're from eastern Oklahoma, a uh, small town. Um, I'm fascinated by this area of the country. I'm from North Texas, um, from Sherman, Texas, um, right. No right between us. You could draw a 90 degree angle from basically where I grew up through where you grew up to I know you have this poster I read to um, to Arkansas, you know, in the home of like True Grit. And I just got done watching the series Bass Reeves on Paramount, uh, which basically that's the area from your home to my home is where the entire thing takes place. Um, it's a unique part of the country in, in it historically rough, still impoverished in many ways. Um, and you have a unique tie to it. I mean, you're the only sitting member of the Senate who's a Native American. You're you're a member of the Cherokee Nation. What what is what does all that bring to you? Like how, how on, it's easy to read how it's unique in your bio. How does that make you unique as a man, as a senator? You know, uh, honestly, I, I, when you grow up where I grew up, and by the way, I'm sitting right here on my ranch. I'm in my uh, actually in my office. It's in my barn, and I'm looking out at the horse right now using the bathroom in front of me as we speak outside my window. I mean, it's just, it's where we live. Arkansas is right beside me. Uh, and, and growing up here in Indian country, being Cherokee or being Native American isn't anything special because you everybody is. It, it, no one makes a big deal of it. Everybody grew up using IHS, Indian Health Services. Uh, nobody had health insurance because everybody went to the Indian Health Services. You, you, uh, you, you, you I, the county I'm in right now, it's uh, it, out of 77 counties in the state of Oklahoma. It's the poorest county in the state, uh, and it's way we we were always raised. So I didn't think anything special about being Cherokee until I went to Washington D.C. And Tom Cole, who's Chickasaw at the time, he says, congratulations, we just doubled our Native American population in, in Congress. At that time, it was just him and I. Uh, now, when I went to the Senate, I'm the first Cherokee and the first Native American to serve in the Senate from uh, Oklahoma since 1925. And the, and the only current member that's a, that's a Native American. And the perspective really isn't anything different than anybody else. And I get to ask this question, but really we all are elected to represent our backyards, right? And we represent our backyards by it being our life experiences and the way we're raised. So I I, I just represent Oklahoma. It, it's I was born and bred here. Uh, uh, my family's been here. We came over on what they, historically, I get pushback when I say this, but historically it's referred to as a volunteer walk. It was the Trail of Tears. Trail of Tears had two walks. One was what they consider the the, the 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 volunteer walk, which was happened in the 1830s, and then the trail then the trail of tears, which was a force walk. That was a second walk. We've been right here in that area since then. I mean, we crossed Arkansas, which is just a half mile to 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 the uh, to my east from here, and uh, and we settled. And we haven't moved. So I will tell you honestly, when I first got to Washington, D.C., though, I was a little bit intimidated. I was like, what do I have to bring? I got these guys sitting across from me that's graduated from Harvard and Yale and MIT and Duke and all these fancy degrees and law degrees. And I I, I grew up milking cows and working cattle and, and, and breaking horses and doing plumbing work. Uh, and what do I have to bring that's different? I mean, I, I got punched in the face for money. I mean, that's not really the background that people have in Congress, but it also is unique because it's the way our founding fathers wanted to set us up, right? We wanted it to be set up by not a ruling class, but from different individuals. And it's the great thing about America is that you don't have to be from royalty. You don't have to be 
from a bloodline that that's always been in politics. Uh, that's not the way it, it is in America. You could just say I got fed up and why I ran for office because I got fed up. They shut down a company we had that was that employed um, about a little over 100 people. The EPA did it. And I thought, well, if my problem is it isn't my ability to hire and fire right. My ability is is the fact that uh, some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. shut me down. Then that's where I'm going. And that happened underneath Obama. That, and so the background that I bring is just Oklahoma. I think my background is no different than anybody else that lives in this state. We all have similar backgrounds. I love that. I love what you just had to say. I love your background. Um, of course, uh, it's not exact, but it's it's one I'm familiar with. You know, it, by the way, they always say the, the 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 biggest hatreds are small divisions. You know, I'm I'm taught that I was raised on the right side of the Red River. You know, and there's a reason Texas doesn't fall off <laughs> into the Gulf we, of Mexico. We, we learned how to do two things really good. We can we you guys don't even know how to wrestle in Texas, and uh, and then we know how to play football really well. So we we got that. You may be bigger in landmass, but one. we're bigger in hearts. I'm gonna let you have the wrestling, but the football thing. I think you're on. You're on. You're on a limited timeline on that one. Uh, no, but I, the the small differences is that I understand your lifestyle. I understand how you grew up, and I appreciate that there's somebody in the Senate who who has your background, who has your mindset. Let's apply that. Um, let's apply that to the current um, efforts in the Senate. Look, I'm having trouble, and I'm being. You're in the Senate, okay? And and I I don't I, I don't know. I do know that you have, um, you believe you, you've adopted an America first ideology to some extent, asking how it serves America. And, and, and you, even more importantly, should be asking, I think more importantly, how does it serve Oklahoma? Because that's your job. But um, tell me how, uh, for example, we'll use one, because foreign aid is currently a debate, uh, a matter of much debate. How does it serve the people of Oklahoma to be funding to the tune of record numbers of billions? Uh, a war in Ukraine. And I don't care about good guys or bad guys. I'm not here to defend one side or the other. I'm not here for any of that. I just want to know, why is it important to American peace and prosperity? So I, I will tell you, I was I had this same question before I went to D.C. And as I stated earlier in the program, we all make decisions based on two things, the way we're raised and our life experiences. My life experiences changed drastically since I've been to D.C. Setting on the Intel Committee, setting on the Senate Armed Service Committee, um, you get privy to a lot more information than what just the average person walking around there. So let's talk about why it's important to us. Let's use Ukraine, for example. Ukraine is the first area that everybody gets spun up about. Um, go back to, first of all, our federal obligation. Now, like it or not, we didn't get in this agreement. You and I is before our time. But in 1994, December of 94, we signed the Budapest Memorandum with Ukraine that said, that if they were to give up their arsenal of nuclear weapons, which, by the way, was the second largest in the world at the time, second to us, uh, they they when if they were to give up that arsenal, that the United States and the might behind it would defend them in the case that they were invaded specifically by Russia. You can Google Google the Budapest Memorandum; it's got its own Wikipedia page. So we have a federal federal obligation to them. But more importantly, what do we get out of it? For 20 years, we've been fighting a war on terror. And and we our conventional weapon system had kind of rotted away. It kind of got outdated because you're not using missile defense. You're not using, um, you're not using air defense. You're not using ships. You're not using uh, things to knock down drones. Uh, you're really trying to have big bullets to go through rock and clay walls. You're worried about IEDs, and so you're more worried about MRAPs and up armoring our, our Humvees than you are about anything in the air or in the water. 
when we started this fight with Ukraine, we realized that our defense industry was way down. For instance, 155 rounds, Russia makes more a month in 155 rounds than we make an entire year inside the United States. Uh, we're, we're spending $2 million to bring down a $100,000 um, drone or a $50,000 drone. We never fought drones in, in Ukraine. So our defense industry has actually gained, uh, or in, I say Ukraine, in the Middle East. Our defense industry is actually helping get spun up because of the war in Ukraine to some degree. So what do we get out of it? We're getting prepared to fight if we have to with China. And we're not going to choose to fight against China. We're not going to choose to fight against Putin. But there's one guy that uh, President Xi in, in, in China is making that decision for us. We're not being the aggressors. They're being the aggressors. They're the ones being aggressive May I, and in the Pacific. Uh, go ahead. May I interject a question? I find your, your, your answer interesting in this respect. You, you gave me an answer, and there's going to be more, because as you said, you become privy to more information. First, a question, and then I want to push you on something. Um, this is a little bit off, but you bring up that you're privy to intelligence briefings, you know, and, and I appreciate that the intelligence agencies uh, I appreciate and I don't appreciate are far and wide and vast. And that means there's great people and, and, and bad people and trustworthy people and untrustworthy people inside of our own intelligence agencies. But when I see stories that just came out, for example, of the CIA helping to begin the investigations into President Trump, I think a worthy question to ask going forward is how much can you trust what you're being told sure. in those intel briefings. Just because you have the three-letter moniker CIA doesn't mean that, that what you're getting is A, truthful, or B, in the best interest of America. You don't. Uh, the people that are appointed by the presidents, you don't trust them. It's a trust but verify. So that's why Codell's congressional trips that we do that a lot of people complain about. Um, there are some people that abuse the Codell's, don't get me wrong. But if you're doing them right, you're going to in-country, you're getting the in-country, the chief of station briefings. You're going to the FOBs, four operating bases. You're getting away from Washington, D.C. that are politically appointed positions, and you're getting to the guys that are in the field. You're getting your eyes on it, you're getting your ears on it, and you're getting your hands on it, and you can get the, the, the information you need. Then you go back to those briefings and you push the political appointees on why they're not telling us the, the truth, why are they redacting it. Uh, and that, because if you just rely on the briefings that the White House sends you, you will get nothing but their story that they want. You have to travel. I was in 17 mm -hmm. countries last year alone, a little kid from Westville, Oklahoma, uh, that uh, never really left a 250-mile radius around where I, where I live today, all of a sudden is going to 17 countries in one week. It's humbling, but it's also important because it's fact-checking. Uh, because someone's going to have a presence around the world, and if it's not us, then who is it going to be? Because, by the way, the person that has a presence around the world also controls the economy, too. And you got to think about that. We don't we, we can't be an isolationist country because we're not an isolationist economy. Our economy is widespread. And if it is there an argument to be made, Senator, on that note, and I'm just trying to have a conversation with you, I don't interrupt to sure. debate. I, I just no, um, find some yeah, of the things yeah. you're saying. Yeah, I. I just had this conversation with Pete Hegseth, my co-host on Fox and Friends Weekend about, you know, this. I was with Al I'm watching Alexander the Great, and we were talking about empire building. You know, if you're not growing, are you are you declining? You know, Jimmy Johnson once said when it came to sports, there's no status quo. You're getting better, you're getting worse. Right. But it, that may be true. That may be true. But I'm curious because you've brought them up more than once now. It seems like America's approach to being involved in the world, as you just described it, has been 
rudimentary explanation here, but bombs and bases, you know, drones and bases, military footprint, where China's taking a different approach. They're intertwining their influence, their economy, their, their peddling influence, their intermingling their businesses in Africa and Latin America, all across the globe. Is there not a, I'm not saying China, good guy, America, bad guy, obviously. What I'm saying is, is there not something there to learn from your adversary? Yeah, so I would I would say that you you have to look at a different approach. We look at politics as four excuse me four years. They're in a hundred year Belt and Road Initiative. It's called One Belt One Road. So um, understand the differences. We are involved in a lot more. Our foreign aid uh, through our USA aid, um, our State Department. We're not just bombs and stuff. We're there in the case they need it. So like Ukraine, they're in the case and need it. We're in all these other countries. We're not in fights with them. We don't have troops there, but we may have a base there that's in the region that they want influence because they want to know that we're there for overwatch protection. But typically what we're looking at is actually shipping lanes. So one belt, one road initiative, it is to get, you, you got to think about what President Xi is trying to do here. He's trying to encompass the, the world in one belt, one road, one road with exit ramps that go to China. That, that means he wants everybody to be reliant on them. And so when they do that, they got to control the shipping lanes. So what you're seeing now is China isn't investing in their economy. They're investing in areas so they can build a port to control the shipping lanes. So, so where they put a port, they also put their military. And you start looking at what they're trying to do by encompassing the, the economy. 80% of the cranes right now that used in all shipping ports right now, 80%, the technology that was built and the technology that uses the information to know what's in the container to ship it to what ship is controlled in China, Beijing, China, 80% of it right now. When you start looking at the at the currency, they're pushing real hard in Brazil currently for Brazil to start look, recognizing the yen as a currency. When you start realizing that the belt, the road is, is, is complete, and then they start doing the off-ramps, what does the belt mean? Why do they say one belt, one road? The belt in China has two meanings. It's the traditional meaning, hold something up, hold something together, that's your pants. And also on the other side of it is a way to insult or to correct. It's a belting. Used to, they would take their belt off, like in the Middle East where they throw the shoe at you. In China, they would take their belt off because it was a cloth belt at the time, and they would slap you across the face. And it was a form of humiliation and correction. And so the belt is when you start complaining about them, they're going to tighten their belt around their waist, and they're going to tighten the economy, tighten the world, make them be relying on China, and if you don't respond to them, then they're going to discipline you and slap you across the face. That's what we're dealing with right now with China. That's the One Belt, One Road, 100-year initiative. United States, we can't get out of it through a presidential election cycles. And if we don't take a different mm -hmm. approach to it, then we are going to find ourselves greatly behind, which we are today. Ten years ago, China only, control, or only had an interest in roughly 10% of the nations around the world, 10%. Today... They're approaching over 70 percent and in and, and South America right now. They're in every single country but one in South America. But one six years ago, they wasn't even they didn't have a presence in South America. I, I want to go back to to you, by the way, small town guy from Oklahoma plumbing business sure has um, made himself very um, informed on geopolitics. Uh, I think your answers are, are appreciated in, in the effort and time you've put into that. I want to go back. I don't know. I want to be sensitive to your time. So you can also just let us know on air uh, if we're pushing into pushing into um, running up the horses. Um, the, the, uh, the, the answer on Ukraine that our military was behind, you know, um, you pointed out several different things. Um, 
specifics where we were behind Russia, for example, on ammunition or whatever it may be. And that this, your answer to me was, this has been an opportunity to spin up our military industrial complex. Um, that answer from you is going to strike some as like, well, that's exactly what I thought. It's a big laundering operation for the military industrial complex. Now, oh, yeah. you could be saying the same thing, though, Senator. You could be saying the same thing. You're kind of saying we need to. So here's my question for you. Nobody... I think this is a fair statement. Over the last 20 years, nobody in the globe has been more militarily active than the United States of America. We have been, throughout largely the Middle East, militarily active. If our military-industrial complex has allowed itself to somehow fall behind another power, and in this case we'll talk specifically about Russia, who in su- to some extent has been exposed as not quite the great might that they might have, we might have all thought militarily, Russia. If we've fallen behind Russia... I would think there's something wrong with our military industrial complex and their ability to respond to our needs and efficiently deliver our needs that should be addressed beyond, hey, here's a new war to trial out stuff that might be needed in the in the military industrial complex. Like I don't think that I'm having trouble with this war is what was needed to get the military up to up to speed. I don't want you to think that that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying if people want to look at what we're doing up to date right now, Majority of our money or majority of the money we sent to them has been through what we consider um, out of date shells, out of date equipment, out of date um, stuff that we would normally be blowing up munitions, air defense that we'd be blowing up in McAllister at noon every single day. McAllister, Oklahoma is a munition depot. And every day it sounds like thunder is going off at noon because we're using the spent rounds. So 75% of the aid package that we ha- that we just that the Senate passed, 75% of it goes to replenish our munitions and and restock them. So what we did though is when you start talking about that, you got to start looking at what we've been fighting. Our military defense industry was focused on what our needs for was for for a war on terror. We wasn't having to focus on air defense. We wouldn't have to worry about ships. We definitely weren't having to worry about drones. Now that we're seeing what a conventional fight was, so one's a war on terror, now we're switching to a conventional. We're switching, we're making a we're making a move to a conventional war, which China and Russia had been focusing on. While we were worrying about IEDs, they were worrying about getting supersonic missiles, which we hadn't even started on. When we were worried about getting MRAPs, China was worried about building ships. Now they're building ships at the tune of 30 to one that the United States is doing. And so we're having to change our defense industry. So what the war on Ukraine did is it woke us up and said, oh, hold on a second. We've got behind from what a conventional war actually looks like. Instead of fighting guys that run around in Toyota Tacomas with a 50 cal mounted on it with a rag around their head, we're now fighting guys that it's conventional war. They're a conventional army. These guys are fighting the same tools with the same technology that we have. I mean, we're fighting guys that hadn't even had night vision, and so we can win all of our fights in the night. We're fighting guys now that they have that same technology that we have. And so we're having to change. The whole defense industry is having to move, and then we're realizing um, we can't keep up with the amount of shells that is required to fight in Ukraine. How would we be able to fight two fronts at one time? God forbid we have to take China on and Russia on at the same time. Right. So we're using this so- as an opportunity not to – not to launder money, but to get better prepared for what our enemies might bring to us because it's peace through strength. Reagan believed in that. We won the the the, the Cold War because we were able to outproduce and outpace the, the the arms race in Soviet Union and we broke them. 
because they couldn't keep up with us because they feared the technology that we had. No one's fearing our technology today. And if we don't have something for them to fear, then there's nothing to keep them from from pushing their will on around the world. By the way, when I use the term money laundering, that's that's a loaded term, and I didn't. It wasn't the right oh, term for me yeah. to choose in this particular application. What would have been the more more appropriate term for me to choose would be sort of the. And, and look, I'm not. This isn't a debate point, but this is the way many people see this. Like, it's a it's a it's a political payoff to a huge constituency that's ever present in Washington. That's the military industrial complex. I'm not arguing that's to you that, that that's, that's the case. I'm telling you. That, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. You'll say to me what? Well, it's kind of at our own doing when you start looking at this. It's, it, it, I, it's so stupid. Everybody wants D.C. to operate like a business, and yet we don't. We don't even kind of. It drives me nuts. So what happens inside the DOD, the DOD, you, you, they talk about these uh, Boeing or, or or all these other organizations that have huge contracts. And I hate to just single out Boeing, but I really don't want to go down the list and start naming people. But we we start we start using the these guys as an example because they have billions of dollars worth of contracts for the defense industry. But what happens is is because of the rules that Congress has passed, there's so many checks and balances that's put in place. The small guy really can't get into it because the paperwork and the amount of auditing that takes place to get a contract like that with the, with the Department of Defense really can only be a publicly traded company. So when we have a small company that comes up and tries to uh, sell to the Department of Defense and they say, yeah, we'd like to give you this contract, but since it's over 500 million, because this is a case in one case, since it's over 500 million, we can't do business with you unless you sell to one of these other guys because they're a publicly traded company and they've already got cleared through Congress to be able to handle the contract. So you're going to have to sell and, 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 and they'll have to buy the product. And then the product goes from, uh, from costing us, uh, let's say, uh, I'll just use round numbers, $100,000 for a piece of equipment. Now that contract has markups on it and that contract is gonna cost us $175,000. And I get arguments like this all the time inside the Senate Armed Services Committee when we're having briefings, especially classified briefings, is why do we continue to do this? And they keep coming back to us to say, if Congress wants to change that, then Congress needs to change the rules. And then when we go to change the rules, people are saying that we're just trying to get bought off so we can give one of our friends a contract that's favorable for them to the DOD. And it's like a lose-lose situation. Well, I think the best example of this is I'm re- I've am i been reading it, 600 pages, so audience, just give me some time. I've referenced a lot. The, the biography of Elon Musk, where he, he did this exact thing with NASA. He's like, look, um, cost plus is a dumb business model, and it's right. incredibly inefficient. And so he presented an, op- an option of, of space travel um, that, that was predicated upon outcomes, like any entrepreneur would, um, and it's revolutionized that industry. Um, one last thing, and, and then I want to ask you about the border really quickly, but one last thing on this. I don't think so. If I asked you, set aside the Budapest Memorandum, what is in the best interest of Americans today? Why is funding a war in Ukraine? Like, what do I care if Russia takes a chunk of Ukraine, whatever it may be? And I'm not trying to be callous, I'm not trying to be cold, I'm not, but like, my job, your job is to understand and serve the interest of Americans. And if I ask you directly, how does this serve the interest of Americans? Am I correct in hearing you out in this conversation because it prepares us for the next ex- existential war? No, there's a lot of tentacles to this. Let's go to what what Ukraine has to offer. For instance, Ukraine has the largest rare earth mineral deposit arguably in the world, definitely in Europe, but arguably in the world. The only person that would rival that is the rare earth mineral deposit in China. The next one to that is in Afghanistan. 
Um, so if you start looking at where we're moving as a world, do you want the alliance between China, North Korea, Iran and Russia controlling something that we're using in every one of our batteries, every one of our cars because they go in the chips, every one of our phones, satellite technology, everything we're using, and we don't have the minerals here inside the United States. And if we do, we can't get past the environmentalists to actually go mine them to begin with. So that's one. Two, they control also the second world supply of food to that region next to Russia. So you start thinking about the the destabilization that Russia all of a sudden controls, that they control the minerals, they control the shipping lanes and the food. Third, talk about gas. The only person that can rival Russia inside, inside Europe for gas, meaning for heating cases, and we see Russia use heat, use gas as a leverage point all over Europe, is Ukraine once again. Ukraine has the second largest pipeline next to Russia in Europe, and they, they supply the biggest chunk of that. The second one is their nuclear power plant, which also supplies power. So you start thinking that Ukraine may not just be Ukraine. Ukraine is a central power source that Russia desperately wants, which is why Putin chose to go there. They could have went into Georgia. They could have went to Azerbaijan. They could have went into any of these other countries they wanted to, but they need their resources that, that Ukraine has. And if you, Russia is allowed to get the resources, they'll control the economy because the uh, power, energy, is the backbone of the economy. Without reliable and affordable energy, you cannot have a reliable and affordable economy. Without that, I'll show you a third world country. So if Russia all of a sudden controls the energy to the entire Europe area, they will control that entire economy. All right, um, we've gone longer than you than we anticipated, which I'm happy with, and I hope that you're you're okay and pleased as well. So, but I want to hit the border before we go. You go, you were on Fox and Friends um, before the release of the Senate border bill, um, which came under huge criticism at that time. I believe you were talking to my co-host Pete Hegseth. You said, "Just give it a minute. Let's read the bill." Um, right. You advocated for patience. I think afterwards you ended up not. You can correct whatever I say here. Uh, clarify. I think you ended up not supporting the the way that that, that turned out. Um, what I don't. I think what many of us think is, uh, why do we need a bill? Like why why is it necessary to pass a law where it seems like everything is available? All we're lacking here is enforcement. Uh, that is a actual really good argument, and you don't. You technically don't need the bill. To have uh, to to secure the border, Biden could absolutely reverse the the um, the policies and the executive orders he put in place and went back to what uh, Trump wanted uh, and Trump had in place, which was when we had a secure border. But one thing that Trump couldn't get done is he couldn't change the asylum rules and he couldn't change the parole process. And in fact, when he tried to change the asylum rules, what ended up happening is they took him to court and the court overruled his his executive orders. And so the asylum process has to change. And so instead of them just being able to come in and say, I fear my government, no proof of burden on them, they can simply come in, we give them parole, and they have to show up in six to eight years while they're here legally, and we have to support them in the United States. We had to change that policy. And what Trump wanted to basically do is go back to what the PAC said, like Canada and, and Mexico is. You have to claim asylum in first country. We have a first country policy that says with China, Mexico, or with uh, Mexico, United States, and Canada that says you cannot claim, claim asylum in my country if you come through one of these countries first. You have to claim asylum in the first country you go to. We're the only one that doesn't enforce that. Trump tried to reverse that. There, in this policy uh, or this border bill, we were actually trying to make that change. And then in the pro process, instead of just claiming it and automatically getting accepted it, 
you were you you had to actually prove the burden that you had credible fear in the country and there was no safe place for you to go to along the way, which would have been Mexico because it's considered a safe country. You'd had to claim asylum there. That would and this is what Trump was saying. If I do that, that'll keep the flow of these 170 other countries that's crossing Mexico. These individuals from 170 different countries crossing Mexico. It'll have to. It'll keep Mexico start securing their own border on their southern side. Because otherwise, these individuals have to claim asylum there. So they don't want to be invaded either. Uh, that was what we were trying to get done with this parole bill to begin with, not to secure the border. The border could be secured today if the Democrats wanted to do it. But to, or in order to have this process from going farther down the road, if Trump gets in office, which let's pray to God he does, then uh, then he won't have to go to court. He can immediately enforce this part that Joe Biden won't enforce. You're absolutely right about the asylum process. It's the beyond enforcement of the border. It's the biggest issue that has to be solved. I don't know that the prices or the compromises, and I know governing is about compromise, uh, but I don't know that the prices and the compromise that were required to go along with that asylum process was what's best. But we got to fix asylum process. Hey, am I correct? In um, one of my producers told me that you do you have a quote? Did you say something like everybody needs to get punched in the face every once in a while, or at least once in their life? <laughs> yes, I did say that. Yes. Every now and then, you need to be checked. Is it once in your need, life or every once in a while? Every once in a while, you need to be corrected. It, it's okay. I mean, when you, sometimes you get a little too big for your britches, and someone needs to correct you. Unless you live with a wife like me, <laughs> who's happy to correct me all the time, um, then uh, every now and then you need to be. You got to have. You need to be checked at the door. <laughs> well. Mike the skateboarder dotted my eye in eighth grade. It swole up. He had a fighting ring on, so it cut it and swole it. So I, I got the. I've, I've had you, the. You I've had, them, I checked you? that box. Yeah. I do remember it. Yes. It, or is he being a say, uh, it was it was a stupid middle school. How did we end up in this fight type situation? You know, two dogs <laughs> passing each other in the hallway. You know, and all of a sudden you're like, why do you guys know. start fighting to the two dogs? I don't know to this day why we started fighting. Um, <laughs> but I need one. I mean, it, it's been a while. I could probably use one. That's not an invitation for you or anyone well, I else. But I, I, don't probably imagine, use one. I don't imagine you're one of those keyboard warriors that uh, that talk real, real, real strong with the keyboard, but yet you won't back it up when you see somebody in face to face. Those are the individuals that I'm referring to. <laughs> Well, this has been a pleasure, Senator Mark. Oh, by the way, uh, it's true. Mark Wayne, your mom, I read your mom gave you, what is it, two uncles' names or your dad and an uncle, but then yeah. on the birth certificate, but but didn't go back and edit it. She couldn't decide, and so she put them both down. Or did she oh, forget this, the space? This, what happened This is going to set me up for criticism. They thought I was going to be a girl. Uh, and so uh, when they when I was born, they didn't have a guy's name picked out. I had two uncles that didn't own, didn't have any boys. And so they were in the delivery room literally arguing about who I was going to be named after. And my mom got sick of it and just wrote, my, wrote one name down the birth certificate and never went. She was had intentions of making one of a middle name, and she never did. So it's stuck. Mark Wayne. And uh, I keep thinking someone's going to name, name after me at some point. So I won't be the only person there that Google. Do you have a middle name as well, in addition to the double first name? No, just Mark Wayne Mullen. Uh, no middle name. There we go. All right. I think it works. Uh, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks for talking substance and and uh, having some fun with me as well today here on the Wheel Cancho. I hope to have you again, Senator. Uh, anytime. Appreciate you. Thank you. Okay. Take care. There goes Senator Mark Wayne Wellen there on the Wheel Cancho. Awesome conversation. Coming back in just a moment, we'll hit story number three. Andy Reid and Travis Kelsey coming up on the Wheel Cancho. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. 
behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, dudes are competitive. So Travis Kelsey got competitive with head coach Andy Reid. It's the Will Kane Show streaming live at foxnews.com and on the YouTube Fox News YouTube channel. On demand, Will Kane Show. Hit subscribe. You'll get any and all of this show plus exclusive content right there. And listen to us on Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. Everyone's outraged about Travis Kelsey. In a moment from the Super Bowl, Travis Kelsey was briefly caught on camera yelling at his head coach, Andy Reid. Not just yelling, but physically getting into Andy Reid's space, bumping his head coach, who stumbled a bit. This has caused many people to say, look at this, look at roid rage, look at this ego, look at this guy. And there's no doubt about it. It was wrong by Travis Kelsey. If that had happened on a youth team of my children, your children, if you or I behave that way, we would absolutely deserve criticism. It's outside the lines. And Kelsey has mentioned it. He has admitted to that fact. His brother, Jason Kelsey, on their podcast together said, dude, you were way over the line. That was that was too far. And he said, I know. I know I was. And I regretted it. And if Andy Reid, who went and spoke to him during the game afterwards, according to Kelsey, had cold cocked me, I would have just eaten that punch. But uh, Reid didn't. Reed said, I love your competitiveness. I love your fire. Let's go win the Super Bowl. Because in the end, I just wasn't as outraged as everybody else about this moment. And still, it's wrong. But it's not deserving of this kind of outrage. This was competitiveness. And what more, this was fire from two men who are familiar with each other. Familiarity can lead to liberties in a relationship. Not all those liberties are appropriate. Um, but this is not, for example... Latrell Sprewell and P.J. Carlissimo. You remember that from the 90s. Latrell Sprewell, New York Nick, choked his head coach during a practice, P.J. Carlissimo. These two men did not have a good relationship, and that was an absolute assault. That's not what this was with Travis Kelsey. And at this point, the Travis Kelsey-Taylor Swift story has taken on such a life of its own that non-sports fans are out there completely outraged about Travis Kelsey. But they're not really outraged about this moment. Otherwise, they've never been in that kind of heated and competitive environment. Again, it's wrong. But you can see a line between it's wrong and, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. Look at this privilege. Whatever you want to make your argument. And that's, by the way, an argument made by Tyreek Hill, wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins, said he would have been kicked out of the league. I don't think so, Tyreek, especially considering your domestic violence charges that keep you in the league. It's not white versus black, and too much of it is left versus right, I guess. Like, everybody's wrapped everything up into Travis Kelsey. Oh, Mr. Pfizer. Oh, um, I don't even know his politics, by the way. I, I don't know that Travis Kelsey has made a political endorsement. Um, oh, Taylor Swift, who has made a political endorsement. But I've told you before, at this point, like, if I start... X and out all the celebrities or entertainers who disagree with me politically, I'm not going to be left with much to entertain. I don't require that of the people that entertain me. I'm really not even interested in it. I'm not interested in their political POV. But just too much has been layered on this thing. It's like, yeah, okay, I disagree with Travis Kelsey about his endorsement of Pfizer. I, I, I disagree with Taylor Swift about her 
endorsement of Joe Biden. And, and, so what? I don't need to layer that on top of this moment between Kelsey and Andy Reid. Everybody just needs to calm down for a moment. Because this is sports. Not right. Still wrong. But also still sports. And in the end, it's honestly all going to be a net positive for Travis Kelsey. He's turned into uber famous. Look, who is Kelsey? A very, very good NFL tight end. I mean, not the best of all time. Maybe soon getting in that range. Locked up by Dre Greenlaw in the Super Bowl. Not enough talk about that in the first half. Locked up until Greenlaw blew his Achilles trying to enter the game in the second half. Then Kelsey ends up with nine catches for 93 yards. But a really, really good tight end. The best in the game today. Goofy. Fun-loving. I don't know that he's like my style and anything or everything he does, the way he dresses, the way he celebrates, the way he talks. But I don't care. I don't have to care about all this. I don't have to layer on all of our differences and all these meta-analysis to look at a moment that was a regrettable moment, but not worthy of normie, non-sports fan, lose-your-mind outrage. Only if you layer everything else into one box. And I'm just tired of everything being layered in to one box. That's going to do it for today here on The Will Kane Show. I will uh, see you tomorrow. Go download, again, Pete Hegseth or Mark Wayne Mullen from today's episode. Share it with your friends. Subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to the show on YouTube. I will see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast and Amazon Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.